Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another fabulous episode of Hedges and Prosecco. We are here on YouTube, and I'm so excited to record this episode because I am talking to my current title holder, Miss Illinois Earth USA 2021, Tyler M. Forbes, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. And I hope you guys learn a little bit more about women in the financial uh, sector competing for Miss Earth and just all types of things about like um, living a multicultural lifestyle and um, traveling and hiking and outdoors and really conserving and protecting the national um, parks and the forests. So that's kind of what we're gonna talk about today with Tyler. And before I let her onto the show, let me go ahead and introduce her for you guys. So Tyler is currently working at a major financial institution where she manages digitization initiatives, which include corporate and commercial expansion projects via financial technology, or called FinTech integration. Having worked with multiple FinTech-based startups and presenting on cashless-based businesses and branded currency globally, she had the privilege of assisting small financial institutions organize and execute digital transformations. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Modern Language and Culture with Applied Business and a minor in French, as well as an MBA in International Business. She is a classically trained violinist, a violist, sorry, a self-taught guitarist, and a global outdoor adventurist who once traveled across the Australian outback, living abroad in Europe countries, European countries, and fluently speaking multiple languages which she says provided her with a global perspective on life that has been greatly beneficial personally and professionally. As an engaged member of our community in Chicago, she is a current member of the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra. She volunteers with Junior Achievements in Chicago, and she is a longtime supporter of Seeds of Knowledge in Atlanta. Currently, she is Miss Earth Illinois USA 2021 and she looks forward to Brittany for philanthropic involvement in the near and distant future through this platform. So let's go ahead and give a nice warm welcome. I'm not drinking wine right now. I am drinking some tea. So let's give a nice tea cheers to Tyler and um, let's welcome her to the show. Hello Tyler. Hi there, Brett. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. And I'll be honest with you, considering it's a weekend, no one's going to judge you if there's wine in that glass. We wouldn't be able to tell anyway. <laughs> Thank oh, you. I, I should have snuck some Chardonnay in here and just like... <laughs> Prosecco, you know, mimosas. It's the morning. It's early. Just add some orange juice in there and it makes sense. It works. It all just adds up. That's so true. Kyla, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, you're, you are currently my title holder. I'm the director for the Miss Illinois Earth System and you're my first title holder. So I'm so excited to have you on the show. I had Christina on the show over the summer. So now to have you, it's like a complete package. Yeah, I think you've got, you've got a, a good thing going here. And I have to say, Brett, it's been really great working with you so far. And I think that we have many more months to just really make things happen. So this is, it's, we're off to a great start. It's going to be a good year. 
I agree. I definitely agree. We had hit the ground running since you got your crown at the end of August, and you're doing a fabulous job holding the title so far and preparing for nationals is not easy. And I think you are perfect with the task. Great, thank you. It's a lot of work, but it's it's been really fun. And I, I'm really happy, especially with uh, the juniors and little and misses and, and working with them has been really great too. They're so sweet and it's been fun. And watching them grow and, and get involved too is really, it's rewarding, it's nice. Yeah, cause you're there. Cause what people don't know, so the Miss Earth system just introduced the junior ambassador program. And it's for girls. And actually, it's not the first time they introduced it. It was, I think, about three years now that they've had it going. And so the Junior Ambassador Program is for girls 5 to about 13, 12, 13. And they get fun titles as well. So they have a tiny Miss Earth, a Little Miss, and a Junior Miss. So we have Little and Junior Illinois right now. And I, I think it's... It's nice that we have them starting that ambassadorship and, and being involved in a really good cause, environmental protection at such a young age. It's not something that's going to go away. And to see them being so engaged so early is it's amazing. Yeah, I agree. And our junior, she's like really about this life before she even got crowned junior miss. Indeed, she has um, the monarch butterflies, sort of the seeds and everything that she's collecting. So monarch butterflies are native to Illinois, right? And and the seeds that she collects these seeds so that they can hatch the monarch butterflies and make sure that we're able to keep up their population. Because I think for a while, um, we'll have to get her on here so she can talk about it. She's obviously more knowledgeable in the area than I am, but I think for a while there was a uh, population crisis with the monarch butterflies. And obviously they're pollinators, so they help us keep um, the local flora and fauna up and running and, and keep everything in check. So it's really cool what she's been doing. Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree. And I think the monarch butterfly is the state butterfly for Illinois. It is, it is. So that it checks another box and how amazing and, and involved the kids are. Again, at such a young age, it's it's great to see. I love helping out with it. And the little, the milkweed, which is the, the flower, the plant that the, the monarch butterflies eat. Very cool, very cool to be able to sift through there and, and make sure we get the seeds and can spread them uh, in the parks. So yeah, yeah it's been great. Yeah. Because you actually helped her put the milkweed into bags. Um, what were you guys doing? That's exactly right. So, yeah, so milkweed is the only plant that the caterpillars of the monarch butterfly eat. So without milkweed, no monarchs. Without monarchs, no pollination. So we collected some of the seed pods and you sift the seeds out because otherwise, you know, they get thrown, people break their yards, throw them away, and that's the end of it. So we collect the seeds and put them in these little baggies. Um, and then she has parties and events where she invites people to come and help her collect those seeds and or take them home and be able to spread them uh, in their backyards or in the parks near them. And so, yeah, we, we sift it through and put them in the bags and attach a little note so people understand um, the importance of the work that she's doing. And it's yeah. been, it's really fun. Oh, I love that. I knew about the milkweed and what you guys are doing. I just know all the details you guys had going on. So that's actually really interesting. It is. It is. I think she's got a really good, she's working on some great stuff. So I, and what, what is she, 10, 11? So it's going to be really nice. I think she's 12. I think she's 12. Okay. I wasn't collecting milkweed seeds at 12. So I think it's great that she even has that knowledge base to start with. I agree. But going back to you, what were you doing at 12? Because I know that you lived in quite a few places. I know you lived in Spain. You were studying in Spain and you lived in Atlanta at a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood and how you grew up? 
Yeah, I was always outside, just point blank. My parents would basically have to beg me to come inside. And it was like beeline from the bus, just throw the backpack down and head right back out so I can just, we, we had, um, yeah, absolutely, to be outside. We had uh, this, our backyard was pretty big, but just behind the backyard was this sort of open forest that we could just hang out in. And that was like a playground. It was like Disney World for us. So we would just spend hours out there and there were so many cool bugs and, and you find bunnies and there's deer and it was really fun. And I think that's what started early for me, my love of being outside in nature and, and making sure that we can preserve it. Because now that I live in a city, uh, we I kind of have to make an effort to go find like, oh, I just want to like walk in a forest today. So, uh, you know, it, it's important that we keep those parks up and that we keep national parks, especially uh, up and, and we're maintaining them and making sure that people have them for generations to come to enjoy because it's so important. It's not just recreation, but it has so many beneficial health, positive beneficial health uh, outcomes of, of being able to be in nature. So, yeah, I think it's great. It's great that we have them and we have to keep protecting them for sure. I feel like everybody who grew up in the 90s kind of have a saying story. Like we were always outside until the lights came on, the street lights came on. Yeah, yeah. And like we would like play kickball, you know, you was a real tomboy. Like life was just so easy back then. Yeah, it was, you know what's funny is I, I, I don't think anyone that knows me would ever describe me as a tomboy, but kickball, outside thing, everything, because, and I say this only because I was right there in it with everybody, but I would never wear pants. Like that was my thing. I was like, nope, I'm wearing a dress and I'm doing cartwheels and I'm climbing trees and I'm riding bikes and no one's going to stop me. And I, I think even in a way today, that's still the case. Obviously the dresses are different, but it, I'm still, yeah, I, I, I think that's great. So everyone, you know, have their sneakers on and I'd have my sneakers on too, but it was a dress or a skirt. That was it. <laughs> and my mom couldn't understand it, but I, it was fun for all of us for sure. Oh my gosh, I love it. So was this all this in Atlanta when you were going through this? Yeah, so my formative years, I say I was born in Tennessee. My formative years, we moved there for my dad's work uh, when I was around 10 or 12, something like this. Those were spent in Atlanta. Um, so I graduated from high school and university there. And then just after school, uh, I moved to Spain, which is where I worked and lived for some years. Uh, that was a great experience. It was kind of on a whim. So I, that's another story we can get into if you'd like. And and then, I don't know, in some weird meandering way, all of that led me here to Chicago. And I've been here for the last three or so plus years. And it's it's been a great experience. I, I really getting into the city life. Um, so I think my first experience, my first exposure to living in a city, funny enough, was in Madrid. So I thought, okay, this is what it's like living in a city. Um, but now, obviously, it's very different from living in Chicago. <laughs> so it has its own, um, you know, perks and, and benefits from being here, too. I, yeah. It's been good. The cold weather, I, I am still out. I'm, I'm still, it's still out for debate on me with the cold weather. But, yeah. you know, at least the bright side is I've gotten a really nice boot collection since, <laughs> since moving here. That's true. You need a thigh-high boots, not just knee-highs or calf-high. You need thigh-high boots. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah, my boot collection is something fierce for sure. So I, and that's the one thing I look forward to with the winter. It's like, oh, am I going to wear these black thigh? Like I do have a few thigh highs too. It's, it's a whole thing. So yes. Well, welcome to Illinois and Chicago. And I'm glad that you came because I wouldn't have a title holder. It wasn't for you. 
Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. So thank you. And you, Brett, you've been here for some time. So you have to show me all of the, the fun things I'm missing. I'm sure there's some, some stones I haven't turned over since I've been here. Yes. So. And you're in the city. So you need to like, people who live in a city of Chicago don't leave the city of Chicago. There's really not a need to. But once you leave Chicago, there's a whole world, the whole state. Which I find so hard to believe. No, <laughs> I, do. I, I very much am in my, I've seen this about Chicagoans in general. We're very, um, well, that's, this is my four block, eight block radius and I have no intention of leaving. Why would I do that? So I have yeah. friends that live in Evanston and I try to get them to come in the city and they're like, that's so far. Why would I? <laughs> Why would I yeah. Well, you know, more or less. Right. And then yeah. I, when they ask me to come to Evanston, I, I act like it's a, it's a weekend, like a day trip. Like I'm going to be there for <laughs> pack a whole bag and get some snacks and get ready for the journey. So you're definitely right. It, it is very, um, it's all encompassing. What's that? It's all encompassing. Bringing down yeah. yeah, it is. It has everything I need, but I, there's some really nice, I haven't gotten down to starved rock, starved rock yet. I think it is, but I hear mm -hmm. it's really beautiful. So that's, on my to-do list. And then even south, there are some really beautiful uh, forest preserves and nature preserves that were set aside by the city. So I'll have to put them on my to-do list to go and check out soon. You should, and Southern Illinois as a whole, we just have a new missus that was crowned, but Southern Illinois is like almost like, it's very, it's not mountains, I don't think. I'll have to like know like the groundscape and how like the Appalachian kind of trails off but there's really really big hills in uh southern Illinois okay. and then it goes right into Kentucky so I'm not sure if like they are like baby mountains going into the Appalachian or what's going on down there but southern Illinois is very very hilly very green space like it's like a whole different state it's a whole different state okay. and it's very peaceful out there and people down there have accents so it's becoming like southern Okay, right. You you were like, okay, we're definitely out of the city. We're heading south. Things are changing. I um yeah, it's warmer down there too. Okay, well maybe that's the that's the draw that I need. That's all you needed to say, Brett. You yeah. just leave with the warmer weather, and I'm done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. See you there. <laughs> yes, I'll get you down there. We'll get you down there. That would be great. So you mentioned a national park, and I know that that's your personal platform. So can you tell us about your history about um, being an outdoors woman? And why the National Park and preserving protecting National Park is your platform for this year? Yeah, great question. Great question. So just as I mentioned before, we have to we have to be able to save these green spaces for use, right? I, I, there's so many good reasons. One of many being just so we have them, so that people can enjoy those spaces. Very base level, right? Uh, but I, I, in a lot of ways, I've been sort of keeping that pushing that forward. I, I've been working with SOW for years. They're based in Atlanta and we raise money to be able to build these water towers so that we can help make sure that we're recycling rainwater and being able to provide uh, that water for crops and, and keeping you know the ecosystem going there. But all of that to say, I think that being able to find more ways to educate people on the importance of having these spaces is really what I want to be able to push for people. So, and I say that because out of sight, out of mind. If other people like me live and work in the city and don't leave, why would you even find find the importance in something like making sure that we have those green spaces for use and, and protecting them? So a lot of the work has been educational, like, hey, these exist. 
here's why they exist, here's what's good about them. I mean, there's health benefits, right? Like people are happier generally when they have green spaces near them. Uh, it's better air quality when you have more trees and more plants. Uh, the water tables are in better shape when you have those plants filtering out things in, in the soil and, and the rainwater. So, I mean, the lists go, I, the benefits go on. I could just keep listing them out, but we'll be here for an hour or so. So I'll just like cur curtail it there and say, the work I've been doing is a lot of educational and, and the, the, the impact of what we're doing has the, the repercussions of what we're doing allows people to be able to use those spaces and, and sort of permeate and say tell let other people know hey this is a thing i think it's uh yeah. it catches like wildfire fire and allows other people to see the importance too i love it you know i never really thought about like protecting those spaces i feel like there's not a lot in illinois and you know like living in the city so i never really like thought about it when i think about like doing something green in mm -hmm. illinois or like the city life it's always like recycling because i see a lot of you know, obviously trash on the ground and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So for you to take on this platform to let people know, like, not just one that we have these forest preserves and these national parks that are designated mm -hmm. spots, like, um, what president was it, Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one for sure. Well, even just simple stuff. I was in Yosemite a few years ago, and this is where, I, this is why I say the education piece is so important. Okay, fine. People go to the parks. That's great. But simple things like take the trash that you bring with you back, recycle that trash. People, it, it, and it makes sense. Why would you know? If someone doesn't tell you, you, you won't know to do this, but take the trash with you because you know either it gets cleaned up or some poor animal eats it and now we have a bigger issue on our hands, right? So um, I, it's just being able to have that little piece, I think helps it so that we can all enjoy it a little longer and a little better is the same, yeah. And I know you have a lot of experience being in national parks from hiking and um, just from doing all types of adventurous stuff. So what got you into hiking? And because you mentioned you were in Yosemite, were you there on a hiking trip or were you visiting the um, water sprout? I was doing everything. I, oh. <laughs> Yosemite, I remember the first time I went coming around the bend into one of the entrances. I'm not sure which one we were coming in, but one of the entrances, you come around this bend and there's this huge rock that you drive past and then you see this waterfall as you're going. And I mean, my eyes were just so wide and my my mouth was probably open like a gape. <laughs> so I'm like, are you closing your mouth now? But it's like Disney World for me going and being able to just be in that sort of pristine, unadulterated nature landscape. It's beautiful. So yeah, I love hiking. I got into it, like I said, really young age. Actually, I'll backpedal. So loved outdoors when I was a young girl. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was in college, I got my, I, I started leading hiking and rock climbing trips. So I had my wilderness first aid. We take people rock climbing and, and teach them, you know, pack in, pack out. Um, here's how, here are the ropes, the basics 101 for being able to responsibly enjoy these beautiful spaces that we've been gifted. And um, so as soon as I got a chance, I said, okay, I've got to go. Like I've done a lot of the, the I hiked some of the Appalachian Trail um, starting in Georgia. I have been to quite a few parks on the East Coast. Yosemite is by far my favorite at this point. Mount Shasta, just in Oregon. There are so many beautiful places. Joshua Tree, I can go on and on. But the point is, um, you know, we wouldn't have those if, if people don't respect the spaces. So I think I, I'm passionate about it, as you can see, right? But yeah, I, it, yeah, I long story short, Brett, <laughs> hiking is 
it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. It's a healthy thing to do. It's a free thing to do. So why not just do the bare minimum and make sure we're taking care of those areas? And I think hiking too. I haven't really done a lot of it, but I did do a little bit of rock climbing. And I also like, you know, what's the word? Unauthorized hiking. Like I'm a tree climber. I like to climb on top of things. Like when I was young, I like to climb um, on a playground. Like I wouldn't go up the stairs. I would like climb around like the back part of it. Like I really enjoyed climbing things. Even still to this day, I went to- You're a natural climber. Yeah. Even when I go to the gym, like my boyfriend's like, this is not a playground. Like why are you climbing on top of things? And you're like, but isn't it? This is this. Yeah, like is it not? So I always consider myself a climber, but I never, I always climb trees. And even today, when I take my pictures for Instagram, I like scale trees to get some good shots. I haven't really posted those pictures. I think it's weird because I'm like dressed up, but I'm in the tree. But I no, always, I love to see those. Yeah, I just think like the act of climbing, the act of hiking, I know a few girls who do it. And I just think that it's just something about it that's like, once you like reach a goal of going to the top, it's just something like exhilarating. Exactly. That's really it. Like once you reach the peak of a thing that you're climbing, amazing. So I, I was going to ask you what, what's the draw for you, but I, yeah, I, I have to agree. I really, I really don't know. I think that's it. I don't know. I think it's just being physical. I've always climbed. Like that's one of my earliest memories. I have a really sad memory of my sister falling out of a tree. Oh, I have an sad tree fall story. Was she okay? She was okay. She's okay now today, but she ended up hitting the sewer underneath. So she hit her head on the sewer. Oh my God. She had a nice big hole. It's like a, a staple story in our childhood that we bring up. Right. How old were you? I don't remember. Um, I had to be like eight and she's a few years younger. So she had to be like six. Okay. Um, That's or maybe scary. she was eight and maybe I was a little bit older. I remember it. So I was of a memory age. In fact, if we'll tell scar stories, right, this, I have, I don't know, sometimes people can see it, this little scar here on the bottom of my chin, um, I was mountain biking when I was like, I don't know, 12 or something, mm -hmm. and well, I'm not, <laughs> despite someone who likes to hike and climb and all of these things, and I, I think I'm a pretty, in some ways, agile person, I'm not, um, I'm a little wobbly, so I was anyway, I was mountain biking and I, I was going, coming down this hill here and I, I clipped a rock right with the front wheel and I guess I had the brakes on or something. Anyway, the wheel locked up, the bike flipped over, I flipped over the bike, it was, and then I, I guess, you know, I decided why land on my feet or hands when I can land on my chin and, and here we are. So when I went running back, I was like, mom, look at this. And she, I mean, the absolute sheer terror on her face uh, and it turned out to be um i think it was like 36 stitches so it healed up pretty well oh my gosh yeah it healed up really well and i'm sorry mom if you're seeing this i do apologize for that um but you know it didn't it didn't stop me i i think i just keep going and get right back on the bike literally and figuratively and, and keep going so yeah absolutely. but a learning experience that's interesting was it were you like bleeding really bad it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. And by the time we got to the hospital, because I mean, it was like the whole bottom half of my face, um, yeah. you know, we kept having to explain what happened and, <laughs> and it, yeah, it was bad. It was, it was, um, I mean, it, it was something that required 36 stitches. So it was very deep. That's scary. Yeah. yeah. My sister got stitches too. I don't remember how many, but it was just like her eyebrow. 
and it was so deep like it was a hole you could see her eye moving it was so nasty oh my gosh that's so scary i'm so glad she's okay oh yeah she was i just remember the hardest part for her was to stay awake because when you have a head injury you can't fall asleep mm-hmm. in the hospital but just casualties of being a youth you know <laughs> yeah we're stronger for it look lessons learned along the way and, and here we are so yes so what would you say is the biggest draw to you when it comes to being outdoors and going hiking? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think one of, like I was mentioning earlier, there are people generally report, there've been studies that, that show people report being happier when they're outdoors. So I, I don't know about you, but I work, um, I work a job where I, I'm inside most of the time I'm mm-hmm. sitting down a lot of the time. And as much as I love it, I think, um, figuring out how payments work and making sure we're moving money faster and more efficiently and more securely is really interesting work, but it doesn't physically uh, provide me that stimulation that I need to be my best self. So being able to get outdoors and stretch my legs and, and just take in how beautiful the landscape is. We live in a beautiful country. I mean, we have probably every geographical feature you can think of, right? And and being able to explore that, it's nature's a playground. Being able to explore that is is exhilarating. So that's my big pull. I it 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 sort of checks that extra box for me, which is um, my physical health and being able to. It, it gives me joy to be able to partake in that. Yeah, and I'm sure it's probably like a nice little dopamine thrill too to kind of like explore, and it's a little bit dangerous. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm I'm actually pretty risk. Well. I don't know if that's true. I was going to say I'm risk adverse. I remember I climbed outdoors a lot. I haven't much since I moved into the city, um, but I was a huge outdoor climber. And I, I, for those of the viewers that that are familiar, I think I climbed around at my peak. I was climbing 5.11s, um, sending them just like one one go and struggling through my 5.12s and 5.12As, right? So it would take me a few goes. But I, um, I was always a very cautious climber. It was like, I'm triple checking like everyone's rope. Like, is your figure eight not on point? Let me see that. (laughs) I want to see your double fisherman's at the end. Let me see your figure eights because I used to teach it too. So I'm hyper cautious when it comes to that stuff. Trad climbing for me was always really scary because I mean, it, it has its own levels of, um, risk that are involved. And so, yes, all of that to say, I, I loved climbing. Um, I do still love climbing. But even in those, those, I've climbed and hiked with people that aren't as risk adverse and it, it sort of put in perspective for, for me, what I'm comfortable with in those spaces and what I'm not comfortable with. So I do like a little bit of adrenaline, but controlled, controlled adrenaline. I love that. So what is 511 and 512? Is that like a height or is that a certain type of? It's a, it's a climbing grade. So I think it differs. There's um, a European version and then there's, I don't know when I was climbing, there are different grade sets, but long, the, the simple version is, I think it's about five, four. No, let's see. Maybe fours are straight, just sort of vertical. I haven't had to think about this in a while. So let's do it this way. Five, four, you can think of it as if you're going vertical, it's essentially a ladder. You've got footholds are abundant, handholds are abundant. You're just going up. Easy easy. Right, exactly. Handholds are bigger, more frequently, they're more frequent. And then as you, as you go up in that grading, you start seeing things like 
0.57. So, okay, it's still pretty simple to do, but um, as far as sport climbing goes, we're talking here. So it's still pretty simple to do, but you start seeing like, oh, okay, I have to think about where my next hand or foot is going to go. Be a little more strategic. And then as you get to where I maxed out, it's like uh, 5.11, not, <laughs> not doing much better than that. 5.12s I can struggle through. Um, those are a little more difficult. So you still have handholds. Uh, sometimes they're a little smaller. Sometimes they're um, interestingly placed. So you have to be really strategic with, with where you're putting those hands and feet to make sure you're um, not sort of boxing yourself into a corner. I've had to down climb a few times to sort of meander my way back around some pickle I put myself in. But um, I think for me, when I start, for me, when I start, and then it's a little more physically, it requires a little more physical endurance. Uh, but then you start seeing professionals climb around 512s like it's cakewalk and and from there i think there was some 13 year old girl a few years ago who was climbing at 513s which i'm not sure because i'm not that involved i feel like they extended the they extended the climbing grading to include those <laughs> so then you get 513a through d or something i not on my yeah that's above my pay grade as far as climbing goes but <laughs> it's it's interesting stuff being able to Wow, I didn't know it was like that deep. So, so the 5.11, that's like the most difficult climbing you can do? For me, for okay. me. There are other people who look at them and laugh and keep going. I, <laughs> me, me, that's not it. That's where I'm maxing out um, is around there. But yeah. So when it came to that movie, um, 27 Days, where the guy got trapped because he was stuck. Um, I think I have that book actually. I I, I read it a few times. Go ahead. I, I got excited because I'm familiar with the story, but please continue. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to know what's that what kind of climb was that that he was doing? So he was um it, it's not climbing. So he was doing a lot of rappelling, which is kind of the opposite of climbing. So he would sort of like go down into these caverns and caves. So they would you 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 fix your rope and then descend into whatever crevices he was climbing in. And I think what, it's been a while since I read the book, but I think what happened to him, whose name I don't remember at this moment, he uh, he, he was climbing and he, maybe his rope was attached to a not that fixed boulder. So, oh. and I think, I'm not sure, somehow the boulder dislodged, which is amazing if you think about it, that, that rock has been there for thousands of years. And yeah. then he came along and managed it <laughs> right onto his arm. Um, so I, that's that's more uh, repelling is is the the answer to your question. Amazing story though, really. He was an interesting. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, and I think it was really sad because if he lose, he lost his arm, right? He okay, not to be too vulgar, but he um, to get out of that situation. So I, for people who don't have context, this is 27 hours, I think is the name of the book and, and movie. It was after days, I thought. Yes, it is, okay. it is. 27 hours would have been one thing. 20, it's 27 days, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, it was one day, I'm pretty sure. It was, it, he was there for a while. And um, so what happened, the, the, the abridged version of the story is he was rappelling into this canyon, a rock moved and pinned him to the wall with this um, this huge boulder, it was a boulder, it pinned yeah. him to the wall and his, he was stuck there and as he was pinned by his arm. And um, so, you know, he had to survive and he kept trying to get people to come. And I think there were a few close calls where some people were nearby, but they ended up not hearing him or finding him. And eventually he, he has to um, Leave. facilitate his own escape 
which I will leave that to your imagination how he did that uh, to avoid being too vulgar. The plot twist wouldn't have saved it for the movie. Don't want to spoil it. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's it's definitely um, that's kind of the point I make about being risk adverse when I'm outdoors. I love being able to explore these areas and and try new things, but I I would hate to put myself in a situation. Obviously, no one does it on purpose, and accidents happen, but. We try to plan ahead and, and avoid them where we can. Do you see a lot of women out climbing with you? Is it a, um, an environment where a lot of women are a part of? Good question. I think that when I started, um, I think there is. I think there is. I think there is. It's a, it's a good community of people. And, I, you know, like all things, it's, it's about what you make it. I think that I did have a good group of girls that I would climb with, and, and they were a fun bunch. Um, so, you know, wherever you go, you can find your tribe. Yeah. Okay. I ask because the people who I know who are climbing are women. So I don't know if that's like a lot of women just having to find this sport and just like go for it or and what's to it. But I, I know a lot of women or well, the people who I know who climb are women. Like I never really hear guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that could be, you know, just context, right? Like you have a lot of friends oh, who, and the pageant world, and here we are. Um, I think that, especially in the last few years, yeah, there's always been women climbers. I'm thinking about um, when climbing kind of started, the pinnacle of American climbing was in Yosemite Valley, and there was a good group of women there that were sort of at that birth of the sport for uh, the United States. But the um, what I what I find is that um, you know, like I said, it's it's what you make it. So that's really the. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about the pageant because that's why you're here, obviously. What drew you to the Miss Earth organization? Great question. Uh, I think that it's pageantry, which I've found I loved, but also it has a little something more. And we get to, these are things I was doing already. And now I have a platform through which I can share them. So those beach cleanups or sand dune restorations that we organized earlier this year, I, I participated with the Shed Aquarium. Um, environmental education, so being able to get groups together and, and just explore nature and, and learn about the local plants or pack in, pack out principles or even just simple stuff like recycling, like here's how you do it effectively, right? We can just throw our plastic in. It's stuff I was doing anyway. Uh, and Miss Earth gives me the ability to expose these things I'm passionate about with um, a greater audience. So that was the big pull for me. I love it. I love it. I and love sharing it. If I can add on there, thanks, yeah. Brett, um, and sharing it with other people who feel the same way. And I, I think that's really amazing that we have this. And I think that, you know, a lot of us in our generation and those younger than us are really passionate about their environment um, because one, we see the effects of climate change like firsthand. And you would think some old people would be involved too because they probably saw their land you know, nice and dry or nice and covered with water and now it's dry. Like they probably actually saw that in their lifetime. But I think when it comes to like millennials and Gen Z, and I think the next one is Gen Alpha, mm -hmm. I think that they're really involved because they see like true devastation. Like when I lived in Hawaii, I saw like it was nice beaches, but there was plastic and pollution all over the beach. And it's just like, really? Like that's what you guys did in Hawaii? Like at this yeah. And then yeah. it like turtles and wildlife. And the marine life and it's really devastating so i think that a lot of us are really passionate about it because we see 
these negative effects coming into play and the weather is obviously changing. There was one winter, I think last year, or no, it wasn't what? It might've been in 2018 where it wasn't cold like in Chicago at mm. all. And then in 2019, we got hit with the polar vortex and it was negative 40 degrees. And I don't really remember last year's winter. It's kind of a blur. It's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore. It like, is. how can you say that? Okay. For some people, climate change is a debate. That's fine. Setting that aside, how? Why would you want to live in an environment where you cannot go to enjoy the beach because it's covered in plastic bits or exactly. trash? Right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Or you can't go enjoy the lake because there's garbage floating in it or the algae's overgrown because there's fertilizer runoff in the water. So just if we just start there, let's clean it up. And I think that a lot of the reason why there isn't more, and I think that we're doing a lot. I think there are a lot of people that are very passionate about it and, and, and there are many movements headed in that direction. I think it's just a matter of education. Some people maybe don't know why there's algae bloom in the lake or where, how that plastic got on the beach, right? So I think just getting people excited and wanting to be involved. And the, the beach in Hawaii, I think it would be really cool because I've seen this in a few places. I did, um, I mentioned briefly, I did a beach cleanup here in Chicago on 63rd Street Beach. I found so many cigarette butts and little bottle caps and things. So I think it would be really cool if we could get together a big sieve sort of thing. I saw one somewhere someone did um, in the Pacific. I think they were in Australia or the Philippines. They took a big, it's a big drum. It's basically like a large sieve and you just shovel a lot of sand in there and then you can sort of turn the dial like a, almost like a bingo ball turner. Oh. And it sifts the sand out and the plastic stays because of how close the grids are. Um, that would be really cool to do. And then sort of just like take it on a tour and clean up some beaches. I think that would be really really interesting to get together yeah i never seen that before i gotta look into those that's that would be a good idea i think I, I will i will send some or post them on the miss illinois earth page so that you can you and other people can see them it's a really good idea i saw it and i thought wow more people should be doing this yes well that's the reason why you're a title holder <laughs> i'm excited i'm excited to start sort of getting other people excited and and really acting on that excitement yes and i'm excited to see your progress as well can you tell us more about the um, national pageant and kind of what you're doing to prepare for it? I know that there's so many categories that you guys compete in. And the current Miss Earth USA, Marissa, is competing for Miss Earth um, overseas, I think in the Philippines? In the Philippines. Um, right now. And it's like four weeks of competition and different things that she's doing. So can you just explain what it's like to compete for the national pageant and kind of the categories that you have? Yes. Okay. So we, it, it's, it's going to be an intense week. It's from the third to, or the fourth to the ninth. Uh, we have, there's glitz, there's glam, there's events, there's competition here, um, passion projects and volunteering, but some of the portions of the competition, the one I'm looking forward to most is evening gown, of course. So that will be on, um, competition day. Before that, we have a really interesting volunteer project that we get to participate in. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, there's also they're having a charity gala. Do you know which charity they're supporting? I'm not sure that yes, it's the World Wildlife Fund. I think it's oh, the yeah. Okay, I don't know how. So there, that's really that's great. It's the World Wildlife Fund for the charity gala, which I think is animal themed this year. So yeah. okay, yeah. And so um just making sure I'm I'm ready and my head is clear and and I can bring my best self to compete that week. And I know there's gonna be so many 
beautiful girls there and women that I can meet and, and really get to know and learn about what they're doing in their areas. And it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah. And there's also a lot of um, women competing this year. It's the first year that all 51 states are going to be there. Yes. 50, 50, I think 51 people, but we have 50 states. <laughs> It's going, yeah, so it's going to be a full house for that week, um, but I, I'm very much looking forward to it. So my preparations look like, like, again, making sure my head is clear, picking out my dresses, um, just making sure I'm staying happy and healthy and, and ready to bring the best version of me and, and meet all 50 other contestants um, so, and the juniors and the little ambassadors as well. So it's yeah. going to be um, a busy week for everyone. It's going to be packed. It's going to be fun time in Orlando. For sure, for sure. Um, so I do want to talk about your business, well, your career, and your like the financial specter, specter when um, before I let you go. So I read your bio off, and to me, it's like so many big words, so much technical words. I am not someone who is. I just really got into money, and like looking at my money. I mean, I've always been like, I always had a job since sixteen. But I never actually like saved money and like made enough big accounts and started like really like investing my money into 2019, mm -hmm. 2020, until recently. So I know you work at the bank, a really big bank. Can mm -hmm. you tell us more about what it is that you do at the bank? And um, I kind of want to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to. I, <laughs> I do it all day and don't mind. Um, it's really exciting stuff. We're in layman's terms, I'll say it this way. I work uh, in money movement. So what I do is look at how money is moving and the different rails that they're moving on. So maybe something you're familiar with is if you write a paper check and, and cashing that check and taking it to the bank, that's um, through, it's called ACH. So you would be writing a check and, and we would clear that check through ACH most cases. Okay. I do know what ACH is. I've been missing that on my bank statement. Right. So you've seen it before yes. and, and it's slow. It's slow. So if you go and cash a check, you don't get you don't get the money right away. Um, usually, depending on the bank, it'll take, I don't know, three to four days to clear in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so that worked 40 years ago. That was fine. You didn't mind waiting three or four days. Now, that's no yeah. dice. I want my money yesterday. Why am I waiting? So yeah. something we're working on is, is being able to... Um, move money faster. And so that would look like real time payments is, is what we're so it's 24 seven 365. You're able to move money from account to account, uh, which is, is great for a lot of reasons, especially when we're looking at things like earned wage access. So if you work um, or gig economy, so if you work, uh, maybe you're a server in a restaurant and you work that day and you make your tips and you want to leave with whatever it is that you would have earned that day, they can pay you that day, your wage, that salary, plus the hours, times the hours that you worked, and it would hit your bank account same day. So you can go off and do whatever you need to do. And I think that's really important when we're talking about um, certain demographics and certain communities and, and just being able to manage and have your money faster. It's uh, the way that the world is moving, everything goes more quickly and we right. want to be able to have and control our money. So that's really important. And then also something that I'm really excited about that we're doing is there's this app called Goal Setter, uh, which allows, so the target audience are, I believe starting around middle school. So young adults, children, young adults, 
um, being able to get them to be more comfortable with finances at a younger age, which again, I think if we look at um, younger, younger people are not having that same amount of access to um, financial education. So we wanna make sure that they are starting off on a good foot. So being able to use goal setter to set saving goals and look at percentage rates and just understand how they can grow their money and work with it over time and get their money to work for them instead of working so hard for the money, right? So um, just being able to right. encourage a new generation through that app to have make better financial decisions for their future and, and generations to come. What is the app called? Goal Setter. Oh, cool. Is it already up and running? Is it launched? We're we're doing a pilot right now internally. I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that, Brett. The app is, I believe you can download it currently today in the app store, but some of the features are being piloted. So, um, but I'm, I'd be happy to follow up with you about that as well. When, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's interesting. So I feel like a lot of women are, well, at least when I watch TV, some TV shows I see, women are really afraid to talk about money because it's like the man's job. And they mm -hmm. don't have any control over it. And I could think of three examples of women that I watch on TV. Um, two of them on reality shows where they say that they don't know where their money, like they don't know what bills that there are. And the one I'm talking about specifically is Erica Jane of Housewives of Beverly Hills. I don't know if you're a Housewife fan. I've but, heard of, I'm, I'm familiar with the show. <laughs> and so she, so she's getting a divorce. And um, she met her husband, they got married at 27. And he was 60, I think at the time, because he's like 80, I don't know how old she is now. But he had all the money and obviously she was a server, she was young and I think she had a kid. So now they're getting this divorce and she's like, I don't know. And, and the, the part of the reason, I don't know why the divorce, but so Tom, her husband was a lawyer and he was like a settlement lawyer. So he was getting settlements for these victims and he used their money and gave it to Erica, his wife. So she had all this millions of money, which was supposed to go to the victims of these losses. And so she's like, I didn't know where this money came from. I don't know how Tom got his money. And they're like, you know, he's a lawyer. Like lawyers don't make that much money. Like you are obviously on a private jet. What lawyer do you know is on a private jet? Like, <laughs> like oh, I don't know. And so then like people are like accusing her of, knowing that he sold the money and all the fun stuff because of whatever. And some people are like coming at her because, you know, by association, she's just as guilty. But during the reunion, um, people are on Twitter, because I'm, I'm a big watch TV, see people talk on Twitter. And they were saying like, she's not, like they really believe her. They saying that she's not um, a victim. She's not, she's not, a she's a victim just as much as everyone else because she just, was not smart about her money and then they use other words to describe her but when she described it she's like i was 27 the power struggle of being with the older man and she's like i just simply did not know what bills to pay i don't know tom did everything and like he just paid all the bills and she just didn't know so now she's getting a divorce she doesn't have any money because technically it's all his even she gave her checks from being on a housewife to him like the show from bravo she gave her checks to her husband and so now that she's on her own for the first time as an adult she doesn't know how to move around so people are like you know you got an apartment for ten thousand dollars a month why would you do that when you have to file a bankruptcy and she's like well i don't know how much i can afford to rent i just know i have ten thousand dollars every month 
and they're mm -hmm. like, girl, like, how are you? Yeah. You have all these accolades, you're on Housewives, you're 40 something years old, and you just don't know how to use money. Mm -hmm. And there's actually another housewife too on Potomac, and they mention money all the time because she's from generational wealth, so her mom has money and passed it down. And so they always ask her, like, did your mom pay for this? Did your mom pay for that? And she kept saying, like, no. And then people are like, why are you guys coming at her because her mom has money? And she's like, I hate, and then the girl says, she hates talking about it because it's just like, it makes her uncomfortable. And then the last person I know is a fake, a fictional person, but on um, Blackish, Bo, the wife, there's an episode where she has to talk about money and she was like physically like breaking out in hives and like sweating. And then like she went to her mom and her mom, she she grew up like a hippie lifestyle. If you watch the show, she's like a hippie. They grew up on a, um, a compound. Mm -hmm. So she grew up in that kind of life. <laughs> and so she's like, I don't want to, she's like even talking about a dollar. And it's um Tracy Ellis Ross, the actress. But she okay. was like sweating and she was like breaking out whenever they asked her like, do you have $5 or how can you pay? And she just did not want to talk about it. So she had to go mm -hmm. to her mom to realize that her mom never talked about money with her. So that's why she doesn't worry about the money. And she was a, she's an anesthesiologist on the show and her husband mm -hmm. was in advertising. So she, she makes a lot of money. But she was like, it was a whole episode about women and money. And she was just like sweating. And she just like really did not know. And she didn't want to talk about it at all. So what do you think is the biggest holdup when it comes to women and money and kind of like really controlling their finances and their financial future? Mm -hmm. I, I think that last example you gave is, <laughs> it's a clear caricature of the situation, really. It's our family, our mother's our family not talking about money and then carrying in some way those same unspoken rules with us and then passing them on. And it's, well, you need money to do everything. So it doesn't serve, it does no justice to anyone to not discuss these things. And if it's, you sort of kick the can down the road, you may end up in one of those other two aforementioned situations where you're literally left holding the bag and you have to say, well, now what? Because I didn't learn these skills before. And, and what happens is you either learn them early on or you're forced to learn them later. And I think it's much easier to learn them um, as you're growing and, and getting more money uh, as your net worth accumulates over your lifetime rather than having to do it sort of on the back end. So I, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that, and I, I think it's not a, an un uncommon story. We, we hear it a lot, right? It, it happens. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's one of those things, the cavalry, I always say the cavalry isn't coming. So we just have to pull it, put on our big girl boots and, and talk about money. Sometimes it has to happen. You know, like what percentage are you saving? What's your, are you, what kind of, what's your savings looking like? Like what, how much are you saving? How much are you spending on essentials versus needs? How much are you putting aside? Do you have a 401k? Do you have a Roth IRA? Are, what are the what are the percentages you're getting back? What's the APR on your credit card? These things matter. And yeah. um, and and that, that stuff, you know, maybe it's a small choice. I got this credit card, but it has a really high percentage rate. Something small like this, or I took out this mortgage, but it didn't make sense because of the value of the home, whatever it happens to be. Those small choices turn out to be very large ones when we look back and reflect on them. So we have to talk about it and you don't know what you don't know. So you have to ask and, and we just learn along the way because um, otherwise, well, it's just not good, right? Like we don't want to end up in any of the situations you described. So absolutely. It, it's important that we take a deep dive on these things as soon as we can. 
Yeah, and I think that app will help too, like just to help the next generation as far as like getting their money together. But I just think there's something going on with like the older women that they just don't discuss it. Or like, I think like, maybe like, they put it onto the men to handle it and then. Yes, yeah, I, I can see it. that. I'm not sure. I think maybe it's cultural in some way and, and a little bit generational, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you said, sometimes we see a lot, I think very often older women are like, no money. Because if we look at it, maybe even just 50 years ago, 60 years ago, women weren't handling finances. You weren't having a bank account unless your husband, father, brother's name was on it. It just wasn't a thing. Right. And so, I mean, I'm not sure what men's financial literacy looks like 50 years ago, but I can speak to the women I know and the women in my life and myself and say that I can see that it's a pattern of just not talking about it. And well, that just won't do. We have to do better. So I say, talk about it, ask questions, learn, be curious and make good choices for yourself financially and otherwise, but especially in this space um, to make sure that we're able to take care of ourselves. What what persuaded you to go into the financial um, it's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a seeker of knowledge. I, and it's something that I think I wasn't that knowledgeable on. And I thought I want to, I want to know more. I want to learn. I want to, what am I missing? I feel like there's something over there I'm not seeing and I want to know what it is. So I I think that was a big pull. And then, um, I, I fell in, I fell in love with finance and working in, in financial institutions and banking. And I think what we're doing is really interesting and it's, it's, how can I say? I like being, especially since I'm working in, in financial technology, we're very much at sort of the spearhead of the future of financial institutions. So being able to help create the future for finance, I think is, um, it's rewarding. It's really exciting to be a part of. I love that. I love that. Creating a financial future for finance. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. We're, we're building the future right now. We gotta write that down to use it for your um your interview. Take some little notes here. I'm gonna put it in my notepad for later. Yes. Well, Tyler, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests for a few things before you leave. Some parting words. Um, so for one, do you have any books that you can recommend for our listeners? Anything that you're reading currently or anything that's inspired you in the past that you can let us in on and give us a little bit of uh, that knowledge that you have in your head. Boy, I have a lot of favorite books and I'm trying and I keep them all here. I have this little coffee table bookshelf thing. I keep them all here. Just well, you can go reach for one and then. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking right now to see which one will be the lucky winner. I recently, um, I recently, so a favorite of mine, I will say, and I'm not sure if there's anything to take away from this, but a favorite of mine is Anna Karenina. And actually there is a takeaway. I think I've read it three times now and every time I read it, you. What is it called? Anna Karenina. I'll grab it. Let's see. It's, it's a behemoth of a book, but it's a really good one. So it's Anna, can you see that? Let's see. It's coming a little bit. Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy. This is the... Okay. And it's um, sort of of the same vein of the financial literacy thing. It's, it takes place in aristocratic Russia uh, in the 1800s. And this woman, her husband... (laughs) become estranged and she starts, she attempts to start a new life and it doesn't really go well because she's completely dependent both financially and socially on her husband. It's not really, it's not really looked well upon at that point. 
um, to, yeah. you can't get a divorce, it's not an option, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so every time I read the book, I see it, you know, I, I'm in a different place in my life and I see it from a new perspective and it, it just gives, um, it's a good novel. It's really well done. Leo Tolstoy is a great author. So if you haven't read it, I 10 out of 10 would recommend it. And if okay. you're not, it's, let's see how many pages it is. It's Wait, like, can you spell the last name for us? Because some people are listening. Tolstoy. So it's Anna Karenina. So that's K-A-R-E-N-I-N-A. And Tolstoy is the author. So um, I'm trying yeah, to see if we can. Yeah. yeah. Leo Tolstoy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then another one I was, go ahead. That's a thick book. It is thick. It's that's what I was saying. And if you're not so keen on reading the book, there is a decently true to text version of the book, uh, true to text movie. Yeah, it's 817 pages. It's a decently true. <laughs> there's a really. They, I think they did a pretty good job. I'm not sure of the actress's name, but she's pretty famous. Um, I can look it up for you. Yeah. Is the see. movie called the same thing? It is. It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's got, um, but it's it's a Kira Knightley. That's her name. So she's, oh, yeah, she's the main actress. She plays Anna. Um, that's a good one. And then, uh, yeah, I would recommend reading it. It's a favorite of mine. And then one I I mentioned to you earlier was the I'll just grab it. A long exile. So <laughs> here we are. This one is the long exile. Much smaller, so fast to read. Uh, it's by a woman named Melanie McGrath, and it follows the story. It starts with following the story of um, a man whose surname is Flaherty, and he's an Irish American adventurer, and he goes to the Arctic North and Canada to uh, learn about the Inuit people that are living there, and just sort of like he makes this adventure movie, and it gets really popular. And it follows the story of the people living up there and how they were exiled, not exiled, they were relocated forcibly by the Canadian government um, to this basically barren land. It's a tundra. Um, and only, and that happened, that's the story starts in the 1920s, but only in 1995 did the Canadian government recognize that um, they played some part in this and uh, they they officially recognized their wrongdoing and, and paid some recompense for fixing the situation. So yeah. and I, I think this is particularly interesting because we're still seeing the repercussions of these sorts of things that happened, um, not just in Canada. I mean, we see this in a lot of places. There were yeah. Aboriginal people in Australia as well as American Indians and Native Americans here in the United States. And we see, we're still seeing the effects of it. I think they just found a mass grave in British Columbia, right? It was. Um, for of Inuit people from that that they went to they have these um boarding schools which were I think generally religiously affiliated but it was sort of a um how can you say they they wanted them to assimilate more I think to the cultural norms of the country and so they were it we're still seeing it today and I, I think that's what makes this book really interesting it's it's a well written um and true and uh, it it, is it a sad book? It's not actually. I mean, it is. It has obviously sad moments because the overarching theme of the book is sad. But I think it does a really good job of not being um, sort of finger wagging. Is is what I was trying to get at, right? Like it. Yeah. It says, "Hey, you know, this is a story. This is a story of a community, and this is what happened." 
Um, but, you know, it, it follows their lives and, and the ups and the downs and the fight to get justice. So, yes, the story itself is not a very happy one per se, but I think that they do a really good job of, of portraying the wins and losses along the way. I love it. Okay. All right. I'll put those two down on my uh, book list. Maybe um, I might watch the movie about Anna. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a good, it's a good movie. It's a long movie. So like get the popcorn, maybe make it a two part session thing, but okay. it's, it's worth the watch. Perfect. Perfect. And then uh, lastly, you probably let you go. I do want to know, do you have any words of affirmation or a quote or a phrase that you use every day or regularly um, to kind of get you going or anything to kind of leave us on positive notes? Yes, yes. And you sort of, I, I'm sure I threw you off the rails there because it's like we can talk about books and financial literacy forever. Probably went over time for you. But some parting words I have then would be, um, and everyone I know, Everyone, yeah, everyone that knows me has heard this a thousand and one times, and I am so sure that they are sick of me saying it, but it's words I live by, and it's the biggest room in the house is the room for improvement. And that just means to me that every day, uh, every day is not going to be perfect. Every day is not going to be exactly as I planned, but every day I can do better. So that's, that's the goal. It's just everyday growth, personal growth for me. Well, I love it. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And um, how can people find you if they are looking for you? Absolutely. So Miss at Miss Illinois Earth is the Instagram. Go find it, follow it. Um, I'm always there. And you get to just see what we're up to every day uh, with at Miss Illinois and really learn about all of the good work we're doing. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. I do appreciate you joining us on the podcast. And I will always talk to you because you're my state title holder. So I'm really appreciative for you hopping onto the show and to talking to us about hiking and finance and just letting us know more about you. Oh, wait, I want to ask you, can you tell us a bit about your adventures in Spain? I let you go. And oh, you to Spain. I missed the second half of your question. What but, brought you to Spain? Okay. Yeah. I went there originally for school. I was only supposed, so I, I speak, I'll do an abridged version since we're wrapping up here. Um, I went there originally for school uh, and I was supposed to, it was a study abroad I went for originally and it was supposed to be one semester. It turned into three years, essentially, is what happened. So I, <laughs> I, I did my semester and then I stayed for another year. And then when I graduated, I uh, went back for my master's, which I, I studied and finished there as well. And then after that, I started working at a Spanish company um, and that's actually what brought me to Chicago. They opened an office here in Chicago and um, I came oh. to be one of the first people to open the office. And, and that's how I ended up here. And that's my uh, abridged version of, of how I ended up in, in Spain. So wait, I did want to ask. So Spain is on the same, almost the same latitude a little bit um, up here with North America. Is it the same kind of weather? Um, yeah. Okay. So it's it as as Illinois. I would say no. I would have keen the weather a little closer to that of Atlanta, except less humid. So humidity is a lot less. Um, so it's you know we have really warm summers, long days. There were warm summers and long days, uh, and then obviously winters. Sometimes it could snow, but it's it's a pretty rare occurrence. It doesn't. I wouldn't. You're not going to have the white Christmas. That's not 
what happens yeah. here. So, and I, I would say that probably the winter temperature doesn't get, we get negatives here. We get zeros and below. Yeah. That happen in Madrid. It would be a very rare occasion. Yeah, I'm going to say that. Because I always think of like Spain, it's like really, really warm. I don't know if I just always see it in the summertime, but I always think of like it's really warm. And I forget that people in Europe like um, have the same weather because on the same latitude. So it's like cold mm -hmm. over there. Like I never really see Europe as like a cold spot, a place. Maybe like yeah. Finland and places with snow. But well, you have, that makes sense. I have, Finland is very much on my bucket list of places to go. But as far as Spain goes, it, Madrid is in the center of the country and it's considered it's Spain itself is a part of like uh, what are commonly called pigs. So um, those that sort of are around the Mediterranean, it's Portugal, Italy, Greece and Spain. They're all pretty warm Mediterranean, especially close to the water. But in okay. Spain, if you go further north from the city center or from the capital, um, they have mountain ranges. And when you get up higher altitude, obviously it gets colder and there can be snow. And then further southern Spain, very warm, a little more, um, I would keen it closer to the weather of Texas, right? Mm -hmm. And then like South Texas, not like rolling hill country, but closer to the, and then, um, okay. uh, and then also Spain has these, um, some islands, so the Canaries, and those are a little more tropical, kind of like being in, in Florida or Cabo, if you could say those weather. Yeah, they're pretty similar, a little, little humid, kind of warm. Yeah, but I would say, I would say that like, uh, probably a little less humid than Florida. Oh, okay. That's interesting enough. And then I also wanted to know last question. So when you studied in Spain, did you have to know Spanish to really like succeed and do well? Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a really good question. So when I, when I first moved, I don't, I, when I first moved to, I'm laughing because this is a funny story. And when I first went there, um, I was not even supposed to be going to Spain. I went and my intention was to go and study in France because I speak French. I do not speak, I did not at the time speak Spanish. Um, so yeah, I think that we, luckily there were some courses offered in English. They weren't all of the requisites and, and sort of, you know, they make you take a certain set of classes before you can take the other ones. So they weren't all in English. Most of them weren't. In fact, I think I had one class in English. And even then, the, my point is this. Can you make it without knowing Spanish? Yes. Is that fun and is it beneficial? No. So I did very quickly have to learn Spanish um, to just really maximize my time there. And I don't think that I would have been, I would not have gone back to do my master's there in Spanish in Spain had I not learned Spanish. And I certainly wouldn't have been working at a Spanish company. Um, so I think some, it was, it, it worked out really well. I did end up learning Spanish, obviously, and um, I think that you, you get more from the country. For example, you can probably come to the United States and not speak English, and you'll be fine, but you'll get more out of the experience if you do. I always wondered that, because when you say you study there, I was like, you have to be fluent in Spanish to really, like, study there, you know what I'm saying? I never really, under, I really, never really knew that. Yeah, so when I, when, I, <laughs> when I first went, I think the only word I knew was hola, which is very sad and kind of presumptuous on my part uh, or naive because why would you not try to at least learn some basics before you go to a country that doesn't speak English? <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't. I was, like I said, naive and just ready to experience something and see something new. And so I would say at about the six month mark, I started learning um, just some really basic things. Hello, goodbye. Um, and using them every day, you know, asking for simple things and, and being able to say simple things, small 
monosyllable, like easy five to seven sentences at about six months. By the end of the year, I was speaking Spanish to, you could obviously tell that it wasn't my first language, but I was able to convey messages and get what I needed and do what I wanted and communicate with my new friends that I made. Um, and then by the end of my time there, full time, I, I was leading meetings and going out and having a good time. And wow. yeah, so I think from start to finish, it was about a, a three year journey to the level of fluency that I have today. Wow, look at you. So you're fluent in three languages, right? Technically English, Spanish, and French? Yes, mm -hmm. yep, that's it. That's impressive. Yeah, yep. I'm, I'm always really keen to learn a new one. So I think Portuguese would be a nice like fourth one to add or um, Italian could be fun because they're all sort of in the same language family. Oh yeah, Italian would be cute. Nice right? and sexy in my sexy language. <laughs> <laughs> now I can, I, and I'm a big foodie. So, um, and it, Italy has great food. So if I can go there and order mi piatto in Italian, sign me up, I'm ready to go. Yes. Well, I love it. And I don't want to keep you too much longer, so I will let you go. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was great talking to you. I learned so much, so much more that I didn't know already. So I really do appreciate your time. And thank you again. And, you know, we're going to get right for this Miss Earth journey together. And I think you're going to do fabulous on it, honestly, at Nashville. I really do. That sounds, that sounds awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you again for having me. And thank you for letting me um, meander with my words a little here and there. And it's been great working with you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, nationals in January in Orlando. So thank you. You're welcome.